I had a friend in high school whose dad was an interesting person. He owned one of the downtown businesses, and he was very strict with my friend. There were all kinds of rules. There were rules, and then there were subsets of the rules. It was one of those kind of dads. And he was kind of aloof, um, but the thing about my friend's dad that, that just got on our radar is that he never showed up. And, and we were in band together, and back then, you know, band meant two concerts a year. Not like now, which is like a concert every other weekend. But, you know, back then, like a, your parental, you know, I'm going to show up and support you. You know, it's twice a year. It's not like it's, you know, a hardship, okay? And then homecoming. You should come to the homecoming football game because that's when the marching routine would actually look right. <laughs> All the games prior to that, it was really just practice with people watching. And then homecoming, it would all kind of come together. And so, but his dad never showed up. And he never showed up to the other stuff uh, that my friend was involved in. And, and we would do the, hey, man, where's your dad? And by the time we got to be like juniors, that was, you know, an, you know, kind of a thing for him. And, and by the time we were seniors, my friend had a total huge attitude and did several things that the administration did not smile upon. And, and it, looking back, now that I know what I know as an adult, that was like him just kind of screaming to his dad, hey, I'm here, pay attention to me. But, but his, dad, his dad never showed up. Then there was Derek. Derek, my freshman year at Wheaton. Derek was one of the Wheaties that came from a family that had money. And it seemed like in 1980s Wheaton College, if your family had money, you showed up to Wheaton in a brand new BMW. All of them. It was, it was kind of, it was hilarious. Uh, Jenny, I'm not making this up. We did not, I drove a 1973 Dodge Polara <laughs> that, you know, <laughs> that's how I went to Wheaton. <laughs> but, so Derek, now freshman year, you are not allowed to have a car. But Derek had his BMW and would park it on different streets. Derek also felt like curfew was a suggestion. <laughs> Wheaton was kind of a strict place in the 80s. Like you had to be in your dorm room by a certain time of the night, like 10 or 11. I can't remember what time it was. And, you had, and if you didn't, you had to sign in with this person at the door. And if you had so many sign-ins, you, you know, had to go visit the, the you know, uh, Dean Shellhammer and you would be in trouble. And so Derek was constantly in trouble with Dean Shellhammer. And Derek did some chapel pranks that were probably not really wise to do. And, and he, he had several girlfriends, and we knew kind of Derek was doing the thing you do with girlfriends, which again at Wheaton, you know, Wheaton was, is a Christian college, and that was also against the rules back then, okay? So Derek was, you know, and the funny thing is, when we, when we, when you get to know, when, as you were getting to know Derek and you found out about his life and what his high school life and childhood was like growing up, Derek never had any rules. Derek never, his parents never insist, you know, school, great, I mean, be home by, you know. And so we, dumb, you know, male college students that we were, by the time we were sophomores, we all concluded that Derek's dad really just didn't care about him because he never set any rules. Isn't that the weirdest thing? I, I grew up, I knew my parents loved me. They proved it a number of different ways. They showed up. The, remember the two concerts I talked about? They were at both every year. <laughs> both conference, you know, sitting in the audience, the whole nine yards. Um, and my parents knew me. They knew what my interests were. 
they knew, for example, um, when I was in late elementary school and middle school, I was totally um, a mini Rand Paul. I really was. I had the Constitution on the wall. I had an American flag in my room. I'm not making this up. And so my mom would look for books in um, garage sales that would have pictures of like George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and stuff, and she'd make them into frames that I could put on my walls and, you know, have them up there looking at me at night. Um, <laughs> come on, it's not bad to have Lincoln watching over you, okay? Um, and the other thing, my parents didn't run away. And so here's what I want to suggest to you this morning, okay? You have some key important relationships. If you're a parent, you have some kids that are, that are under your care. If you're married, you have a husband or a wife. Some of you have some really good friendships that you would like to keep for the next 10 or 20 or plus years. you got to prove that you love these people. And you prove that you love people by doing three things. By showing up. you just got to show up. I mean, half of relationships is just showing up consistently. And, and showing up with rules if you're a parent, all right? And then secondly, knowing them. you got to know what they're what sets their heart on fire, what they're passionate about. That means listening to them, knowing them as a person, and then not running away. It's huge. Not running. Somebody like, yes, yeah, that's right. Not running away. And I had a friend recently. He's my age. He's got kids my age. And uh, he did not approve of the boyfriend that his daughter, the latest boyfriend, boyfriend, you know, 7.0, I guess he would be. Um, and so he was, you know, having a car conversation with her about, you know, trying to get her to see that she should really break up with him and et cetera, et cetera. And, and she just blurted out at him, you know, Dad, you don't even know me. And he was like, well, of course I know you. I'm your father. I know everything about you. And then he got the test, which he flunked in the car, okay? So you think you know me. What's on my playlist right now on my phone? What's my favorite band? What's my favorite color? Who's my best friend right now? <laughs> You know, dad's like, evac, evac, bring in the choppers, come west, clear and hot, evac, you know. He panicked, and he flunked the test in the car. It was bad, okay? So you got to show up, you got to know them, and you can't run away. And, and running away, by the way, running away can be not physically leaving, it can be emotionally disengaging. That's another way that people run away in relationships is they just, you know, because somebody's doing something they don't like or hurting their feelings, I'm just going to unplug and put up the wall and I'm going to disengage emotionally. And that's, that's one of the ways to run away. Here's the good news, and we're going to look at God in order to talk about us. We humans broke all the rules, but God showed up anyway. God showed up anyway, and he showed us that he loves us. And I want to make a case for that by this passage in Ephesians chapter 2. So if you brought your Bible, you can open it to Ephesians 2, Ephesians chapter 2, and that's where we're going to be today. It's as if Paul, in writing this section of Ephesians, says, you want to know what God's love look like? God's love looks like? Here it is. Boom. Ephesians chapter 2. You want to know what God's love looks like? Here it is, right? Ephesians chapter 2 and we're going to look at the first three verses, and then we're going to go all the way down to the 10 by the time we're done, okay? So verses 1 through 3. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers 
of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. Right there at the very beginning, once you were, what's the word there? Isn't that an interesting term to describe people? Hey, just want y'all to know, you were dead. You were dead. Spiritual death is what Paul means by that word. You were dead. You were dead. And, and see, our trouble is not that we're out of harmony with the environment. It's not that we are unable to make meaningful relationships. Our trouble, humanity's trouble from the get-go, is that we're spiritually dead. We're spiritually dead to God. And like physical death, when you're spiritually dead, you can't react. Let me ask a, a question that will draw this out real, real quick. When you go to funerals, what expectations do you have of the corpse? <laughs> Those of you that are younger, this will be a learning experience for you today. <laughs> okay, too late there, right? For those of you that are older and have some funerals under your belt, right? What do you expect from the corpse? Nothing. Nothing. Now, there was this socialite lady who was recently, I guess, stuffed and put in an upright position with her boa constrictor and a martini, I think, in one hand. But still, even positioned as she was by the morticians, what could you have expected from that woman at her funeral, her being the corpse? Nothing. All right? And so that's what it's like, and that's what it means to be dead in sin or dead to God. There's nothing we can do to change our deadness. Right? And Paul fleshes this out a little bit more in verse 2. He says, you used to live in sin. Um, and, and he describes that. And what he's saying is, you know, you think, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil. You think you're making all these decisions on your own. And you're choosing the red pill instead of the blue pill. Or, and, and you're going left instead of right. But really, you're just going with the flow of death that leads to deathness. That's, that's really the only thing that's going on for you, is that you're dead, and you're in the flow of death, and it leads to death, and that's it. Thank you for playing. Ding! Um, and so, and, and he, uh, he mentions this out here, and it's at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. And, and there's the kicker for us humans. We've refused to obey God. Let me, let me ask you parents a question. Why do we give our kids and teenagers rules? Why do we do that? I mean, like last weekend was the prom at East Jesamine Middle School. Last night was the prom at West Jesamine uh, High School. Sorry, high school. Okay, the prom was at the two high schools. There's no prom at middle school yet. <laughs> Whew, that would be something. Uh, okay, so, and parents all over Jesamine County, trust me, had, now you can't go to this thing and you are most certainly not getting a hotel room and you need to be home by 2 a.m. and you must be with these people and you cannot go... What, really? Are we just killjoys, parents? Is that what it's all about? Why do we have these rules, parents? Protection and safety. And kids, if you don't understand this, notice like everybody said the same words all at once and they didn't even know what I was going to be talking about today. <laughs> the reason parents have rules for kids is because parents love their kids, typically. And rules are always crafted out of love because 
a good parent wants their kids to be safe and like make it to 20 and <laughs> and not go oh that was really dumb and 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 so rules are really an expression of love um god's rules god has rules doesn't he like the bible has a lot of rules in it god's rules are the same way don't eat that don't go there it's in essence god saying hey i love you i love you now I, we have this tendency, just like the rebellious teenager, to not see it that way, but that's really what it is, okay? So according to this passage, this section right here, our problem is that we're not just mostly dead, we're all dead, <laughs> and we're refusing to obey God. That, that's, not, that's not a good position to be in. So let's look at the next several verses. But, but... But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace that you've been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. Anytime in scripture that you have a really depressing section and it's followed by that word, you know something important is about to be said. And if but has God connected to it, you know it's like really important. And so this whole section, but God... And then it lays out all this wonderful stuff. Rich in mercy, though we were dead, gave us life, raised us from the dead, seated us with him in the heavenly realm so God can point to us in future ages. So all of these good things are because God loves us. He loved us so much. That's what prompted God to do what he did. God doesn't look down, in a sense, from heaven and go, Oh, look, that one's a good one right there. We'll take him. We'll take him. Ooh, who? He, hey, this one over here in Asia. Okay, we'll take the set. The rest of you can burn. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's not God's attitude. It's not his approach to humanity. Um, it's motivated by love. It's love-soaked grace and mercy. Has anyone, you know the difference between grace and mercy, right? Grace is what happens. See, I teach at Asbury University part-time occasionally I'll have a student that's like a 79.9%. That's a C plus. And I'll go back and, and I might give them an extra. If they tried really hard, I might, you know, I probably shouldn't admit this publicly, but I'll go back and I'll give them like an extra couple of points for an assignment. Eh, you, you probably did better than maybe I graded you for, and then poof, it's an 80. You know what that is? That's grace. They earned a C plus. They walked out of the class with a B minus. That's grace. They got something they didn't deserve. Mercy, mercy's entirely different. Mercy's when you've been pulled over the, by the cop going 40 miles an hour in a 25 mile an hour residential zone and you show up in court and you talk to a lawyer friend who said, well, this is what's going to happen. Um, you're going to have to go to traffic school. You're going to pay $275, and you better hope he doesn't take away your license. And you show up in court, and the judge decides that uh, it's going to be $10, and that's it. 
the punishment, the penalty for committing that act is not thrown at you. You were shown mercy. And God gives us both, grace and mercy. I love this little section here. Um, so God can point to us in future ages. You're like, what's that about? Well, from the moment that we're saved and for all eternity, God is kind of unloading the riches of his grace on us, and he doesn't withhold anything. And it's so that um, he can point to the angels and say, see, this is awesome. Only the angels and all of us will go, no, 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 no. You are awesome for doing all of this. And it's kind of this testimony onto the ages kind of a thing. And what Paul is talking about in this section is he's basically saying, look, God takes stupid, unproductive people and makes them spiritually alive people. God takes slow learners and fast talkers and connects them to God and makes them billboards of his mercy. God takes selfish, greedy people and turns them into heavenly positioned, honored children. God does that. They don't do any of it on their own. It's a gift that they receive. And so let's go look at verses 8 and following. If, if you're wondering what a good passage to memorize would be, it would be the next two verses. Like the next two to three verses are huge if you committed them to memory. So here we go. Um, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do all the good things he planned for us long ago. When you believe. I love that phrase. It, it speaks to faith. It's an interesting word. You know that you exercise faith every day, don't you? Even, even if you're totally irreligious, even if you are on the fence about who Jesus is, you exercise faith every day. In the morning, you go into the bathroom and you turn on a faucet and you fully expect that water's going to come out. That's an exercise in faith. Trust me. There have, it's only happened once in my life, but it happened and I turned the faucet and nothing came out. <laughs> I had a big pipe issue. <laughs> okay? But that's an exercise of faith. When you are hurling down US 68, Harrodsburg Road, at 67 miles an hour, which of course you don't do because the speed limit is only 55. But when you are hurling down that road and going around those curves, you're exercising faith that there's no giant boulders or donkeys or holes in the road that are going to cause you to crash. It's an exercise of faith. All right? When you and I decide to put our faith in what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf, God makes us new. God makes us a new creation. And that confidence in what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf changes the relationship because then it's not about our performance, it's about his performance. And it changes everything. And it starts from the inside out. And it makes us, in the end, God's masterpiece which again if you're really into the passage that means that god is the artist god is the artisan god made it god saved us god gave us life god gave us power it's god's work in us it's not anything that we did on our own it's a gift 
And, and this good work stuff, in the older translations, it'll say, he made us masterpiece, workmanship, to, to do good works. Here it says good things. Does God need your, your good things, your good works? No. Your neighbor does. Your neighbor does. Um, this whole passage is Paul saying, this is God's love at work. And what I want to suggest to you today is that you may not feel it. You may have had issues where you question God's goodness or you question the existence of God or you question the church. But I want to suggest to you that throughout the course of human history, God has actually proven to humanity that he loves humanity, meaning that he loves you. He showed up. While we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. God became flesh and dwelt among us. God showed up. God showed up. And yes, he gave us rules, right? There's the Ten Commandments. There's the Sermon on the Mount. There's some rules in there, sort of, right? But God showed up. Secondly, God knows us. Jesus himself, right? The very, when he's talking about worry, and he says, he knows the number of hairs you have on your head. 426,322, three, right? <laughs> he knows the hairs on your head. And Jesus, by talking about that, says, how much more valuable are you than sparrows? If God knows all these things about what's going on, he knows you. And the psalmist put it, you know, when I was in my mother's womb, you knew me when I was being formed, okay? So God showed up, God knows us, and God isn't going to run away. We rebelled, right? We, we humans have a track record of saying, hey, God, your rules, no thanks, we're going to try this and see if this works. And God doesn't run away. Hebrews puts it this way, I will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus himself, lo, I am with you even to the end of the age, which is his way of saying, when it's all said and done, I'm there all the way to the end. All right? Let me ask a question in light of this passage and in light of what we're talking about. How do you feel on the inside when you know you are loved? How do you feel on the inside when you know you are loved? I want to suggest to you that the biggest thing that comes as a result of it, confidence. When you know you're loved in a marriage relationship, confidence. You're totally confident that the relationship is secure. When you're a kid and you know that your parents love you no matter what, guess what? Confidence. Confidence comes as a result of it. If you've got a really good friend and you know they're not going to stab you in the back, they're always going to be there no matter what, even when you're like decrepit, they're the ones that will take you to the hospital and you can take it to the bank. Confidence. It instills confidence. Let me ask another question. Do you know anyone in your life right now who could use a little love? Who needs a little love? When I was in uh, sixth grade, I totally, uh, I was a mini Rand Paul. Like, I loved America. And that was when it had the A in it. America. Not like it is today where it's just America. But I had, like, little flags on my bike that I taped. And this was when bicycles had the swoop-up handles. So I taped, I taped an American flag on one side 
and then I, I taped an Indiana state flag on the other, and I would pedal around. I thought it was so awesome, and I was the only kid who thought it was so awesome. I actually found a picture of my room, and I want, I want to show it to you. Some of you are like, I am not surprised. This, this is my childhood room. This is the Declaration of Independence. This is the Bill of Rights. Did I mention I loved America? Okay. When I was in fifth grade, uh, my, I finished the year with three Ds, a C, and a couple of Bs. And my teachers had told my parents that they were worried about my academic performance. I, I was a kid at risk. And I showed up in sixth grade in Mr. Oberholzer's sixth grade class at Northside Elementary. And Mr. O was one of those teachers that, like three weeks into it, I just knew he cared about me as a person. And he wanted to see me soar. And he had this thing, betcha candy bar, I get an A in math today. I, I lost a number of times to him, but by the end of the year, I was winning more than I was losing. And uh, if I can go to the next picture, when I, when I, uh, at the end of sixth grade, he gave me not just any book, right, but a book on Abraham Lincoln. Look what he wrote to Mark Vanderpool, our future president. Ah, <laughs> What he was saying was, I love you, I believe in you. He was proving love and care, and he wasn't even my parents, right? In, in ninth grade, uh, the, the summer leading into my ninth grade year of high school, um, while I was away at band camp, my dad lost his job. He was fired. One of the few times in his life he was actually fired. <clears throat> they didn't have an emergency fund. They didn't have any cash. They didn't have any way to, you know, make the mortgage payment the next month or buy groceries. And they panicked. And they decided while I was away at band camp that from Hartford City, Indiana, we would pick up and move to Las Vegas, Nevada, where my grandparents lived, and he would work for my Grandpa John at my Grandpa John's company in Las Vegas. So when I get into the car at band camp, you know, he does the, son, I need to tell you something. And I felt sucker punched. Like, I was so looking forward to going to Blackford County High School. Like, and I was so looking forward to being in the band. I mean, that was the big thing for me. I had worked really hard, and I was like first chair saxophone in eighth grade, and I was like, ninth grade is going to be so awesome, and we had a killer band, and they, we had the most amazing uniforms, right? And so I was going to get the first football game of the season under my belt, and then we would move the following week, right? And I remember asking Mr. Fish, the band director, you know, because we always wore our summer uniforms until it got cold. And even then, these were, um, I can't use that word, um, these were not very attractive uniforms. Like, they were um, red shorts that no matter what size you had, it looked like it was two sizes too small. Like 1978 shorts. <laughs> and we wore um, red Converse low-top tennis shoes, and not even cool people back then were wearing Converse tennis shoes, okay, at that point in American history. And then we had the long socks that went up to the knee, and it had the colors, school colors and big stripes, and a ringer tee. They were awful. They were ugly. They were ferocious. 
uh, and, and uh, uh, we, that's what we were going to wear the first game. And I can remember I kept asking Mr. Fist that week, you know, do you think it would be cold enough? Oh, it's, it's never cold enough. You know, we don't typically get out the full, full-born uniforms until, you know, what was it, o- early October, all right? And this football game was taking place in August. Well, the night of the game, Mr. Fisk announced to the band, it's full gear tonight, guys. It's going to be a little chilly. And when we're in the bathroom, if we can go to the next picture, these were the uniforms I so wanted to don. Uh, when I ran into him into the bathroom, and uh, he looks at me and he goes, Hey, Mark, tonight? Tonight's for you, buddy. I love you. I care about you. I believe in you. He wasn't even my dad. See, you don't have to be blood-related to do this stuff. You don't have to be blood And for those of you that are wondering, that's me. <laughs> okay. I know I see that looking around, where did he go? <laughs> yes, woo, that's a lot of big hair, okay? When my dad retired, uh, he started volunteering at the church office twice a week. And he would do um, filing and phone calling and basically all the stuff that he always had secretaries do his whole life. And, and, he show, and he didn't do any of it really that well, the stuff that he did in the office. He rocked FPU, he rocked so many other things, but the office stuff, just n- not rocking, not, not rocking ever, I, you know. But him showing up twice a week was basically saying, at age 60-something, to his 40-something-year-old son, I love you, okay? Here's what I want you to take away today. It's really simple. In your key relationships, you're going to have to prove that you mean what you say when you say, I love you. Your kids are going to need to know and going to need to see it. Your spouse, your husband, your wife, those key friends are going to need to see that the rubber actually hits the road. And there's three ways. Show up. You just got to show up. You show up at key times, regular times, consistent times. Half of it's just showing up. Know them. Know what their passions are. Okay? I'm 45 years old. I still have the book my sixth grade teacher gave me. Okay? (laughs) When you know what somebody's passionate and hard about and you make that kind of connection, it screams, I love you. And last but not least, don't run. Hang in there. Because that's what God did for us. He showed up. He showed up, he knows us, and he didn't run away, even when we broke all the rules.